morning. Welcome to 2020. I mean, five days in. Welcome to the first church service of 2020, or at least. Um, really excited about what we're going to do this week and next week. We wanted to take a couple weeks just to start off this year and to, to take some opportunities to try to remember what is most central, what is most important. And so that's why this series is called Jesus Over Everything. And I, I want to just start off by getting right into the passage that we're going to read. So if you have a Bible, please open up or get, a, get out your phone and turn to Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be in verses 19 through 22. And uh, if you don't have a Bible, you can see the verses will be up here on the screen for you to follow along there. But we want to start right off with the reading of the Scripture. So, Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself as the chief cornerstone. In Him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. In Him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by His Spirit. This is God's Word. Let's pray together. Father, thank You for this new year. Thank you for the ways that you've been faithful this last year, and Father, we pray that you center our minds and our hearts right now on who you are, on who we are, and on what you're calling us to. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> so right, right at the end of 2019, um, I read a series of books. I, I love reading, and so there was this book called The Last Policeman, and it was a part of just a three-novel series. Um, nothing deeply profound, just kind of crime, murder mystery type stuff. Um, I, you know, the, there's lots of books like this out here, but this book had a little bit of twist. Because in the context of it being a crime thriller, trying to figure out who the murderer is, trying to figure out the, the seedy underbelly of, of all of these things, this is all going on while an asteroid is headed towards Earth and going to wipe out all life on the planet. And, uh, and they were interesting. It, it's, I was about to say they were fun books. They actually were. They were fun books about the end of the world, about the end of all human civilization. But it, it was interesting reading through because I would get caught up in the story and in the mystery, and then suddenly I would pause and realize the greater context that this asteroid is headed towards Earth, and there would be little snippets in the books that would talk about what different people were doing. There were different groups of people responding to the end of the world in different ways. And there was a whole group of people that were called the bucket list people. And when they figured out, because they knew the date, it was October, this date in October, that's when the asteroid is going to hit, that's when all life will be wiped out. And so there were people who had left their jobs, some of them had abandoned their families, and they were just fulfilling all of the things on their bucket list before the asteroid hit and all earth was wiped out. Um, and then there was a ton of people that just went suicidal on it because they knew that the end was coming. There were a whole bunch of people that got depressed. There were people that kind of let their inhibitions down. And then there were people who basically more or less carried on as normal. And as I'm reading through, I just kept, I, I, I would read, you know, five, ten pages, and then I would pause and just think, what would I do? What would I do? I mean, just pause and think. If you're not already thinking, think about it. If we found out 2020, that's it. That's all we got. The end of this year is going to be the end of all years. And we knew we've got one year. How differently would you set up your life than the way that it's set up right now? 
And I would find myself doing that. I would sort of go through this process. I'd be caught up in the story. Then I suddenly would find my mind wandering on how much different would I want my life to be if I knew I only had a, a little while left. And then the third step to this always came to this. I would suddenly realize, all right, I don't know a date. I'm not about to predict a date, by the way. I don't know a date, but I do know that the end is coming. We all know that the end is coming. We all know not only that we're living in the reality that each of us will die, but we're also living in the reality that Jesus Christ is returning. One day there will not only be an end to each of us, but there will be an end to this current world as it is. And even though we don't know a date, I was just engulfed in that reality of thinking, all right, since we do know, if you knew you only had an, a, year to leave, uh, a year to live, the reason you would do things differently is because you suddenly would realize you have limitations. You only have a year, so you've got to get everything you want to get done in this year. But well, let's just take a moment to realize we all live in limitations. You have limited money. And that means if you budget, which you all should, but if you budget, the way that you budget is by setting up things and figuring out if we run out of money, these are the things to go. You don't start by saying, well, we're going to make sure we go to movies and go to McDonald's and do all these other things. You start by saying, well, we're going to make sure we can pay the mortgage. We're going to make sure we can pay the electric bill. You start with those things and then you move down because we have limited money. We have limited time. And some of you live this way just in terms of your schedule that you recognize, all right, I've, I've got limited time, limited focus, limited energy, so there are going to be some things that are going to have to be deprioritized. I can't do everything. These are the vital things to do. These other things have to take a back seat. We have limited opportunities. We have limited time. We have limited money. So we all should be, and, and in many ways are, triaging in our lives constantly what is going to be most important. What, what is going to take a central role? What's going to take a secondary role? What are going to be the things that we'll get to only if all of these other things are taken care of? And, and it's in this context that I want us to spend some time this morning talking about what would it look like if we truly lived with the reality of Jesus being over everything? How different would our lives be if when it came to our finances, we said, you know what, our starting point with our finances is that Jesus is Lord over our money, and then we'll figure things out from there. That Jesus is Lord over our time and our schedule, and so we'll figure it out there. That Jesus is Lord over our relationships, and so we'll start there and move on and figure out where we end up. What is our starting point? And we've already read the passage, these four verses in Ephesians that we're going to go through. And the way that this passage unfolds, there's the on the surface, what we get is an analogy of a building. And which is helpful in this. All right, with a building, you have a starting point. So we're going to be talking about a building. But at a more core level, what this passage is about is it is about who we are. Who, more specifically, who Christians are at the core. And so if you are a believer in Jesus, this is going to be a time for you to get reminded of the reality of the core of who you are, according to the scriptures. And if you're not a Christian, this is going to be an opportunity for you to maybe have some myths taken away about what is at the core of our faith. What is at the core of what we believe as Christians? 
And since this is a building analogy, the reminder that we're going to get through this passage is that Jesus is not an accessory, but the cornerstone. Jesus is not a person that we try to fit in after we've already built our life the way that we choose. He is our starting point. And so let's walk back through this passage as Paul unfolds this. And the first thing that he's going to talk about in verse 19 is, all right, for for those of us who are believers in Jesus, he's going to say, you have an identity. He says in verse 19, so he starts with the word consequently, which makes you think, all right, he's basing all of this on what happened before. So if you were to go back, and and this would be a great thing to do later on in the day if you'd like to, you could read all of chapter 2. Um, of Ephesians. And at the beginning of chapter 2, what Paul is really focused in on is what it means for us to be brought into the family of God by Jesus Christ. As believers in Jesus, the most core reality about us is that we belong to God through Jesus Christ. And that didn't happen simply because one time we raised our hand or walked down an aisle or signed something or got baptized. The reason that happened is because God sent His Son to be the sacrifice to pay for our sins, and that we, by God's pure grace, clung to Him by faith. We were desperate people reaching out and clinging to God, and because He had sent His Son, we were brought into the family. And so we get this great news at the beginning of Ephesians 2, and then as he moves on kind of to the middle and to the end of Ephesians 2, he makes a transition and he says, you know what, not only are we members of God's family and so we have peace with God, but Jesus through His work on the cross also brought us peace with one another. His death on the cross reconciles us to God and it also reconciles us to other Christians. And so look at what he says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. Now, quick quiz, this is not a tough one. If they're no longer foreigners and strangers, what does that mean they used to be? Foreigners and strangers. I'm giving you an easy one to start off the year. (laughs) And so here's what's going on. As he's writing this letter, he's writing to people who are predominantly Gentiles. And if you've read through the Old Testament, you know that the Old Testament is centered on the Jewish nation. And so he's speaking to people that used to be outside of the center of what God was doing. God chose the nation of Israel in order to show himself to all of the nations. And there are different times, if you read through the the Old Testament, you'll see different times that other people opt in, that they say, we want to be a part of this nation of Israel. We see that your God is the one true God, and they're welcomed into the fold. But for the most part, what went on through the history of Israel is that they functioned as a people, and there were those who were in, and there were those who were out. And Paul is writing to Gentiles now. And by the way, Jews and Gentiles didn't always have the best relationship. And there were problems on both sides. There were reasons for this on both sides. Uh, A lot of the surrounding nations looked at the Jewish nation and said, these are just weird people, and they weren't wrong. God had called Israel, some of the passages, depending on the translation, it'll say that He called them to be a peculiar people. You guys are going to be strange. You're going to have strange practices like circumcision. You're going to have strange feasts like the Passover. You're going to have strange practices, and you're not going to worship a whole bunch of gods. You're going to give all your worship to one true God, and you're not even going to make a picture of that one true God because no picture 
could end up capturing who he is. They were a strange people, and so they were often despised by the nations around them. And then there were often problems on the part of the Jewish nation as a whole because they looked down on the foreign nations, these dirty foreign nations, and they have all their many gods and their bad practices. There is conflict on both sides to the point that if you read the Gospels, you see this, complete, you see this happen consistently with Jesus, and you see in the book of Acts, you see constant run-ins where the Jews are not on good terms with the Gentiles. Paul's writing to Gentiles, and he says, consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers. He's saying you were once on the outside, not anymore. And we could read that, and we could say, well, well, this is true of each one of us as believers in Jesus. We once were far from God. We once were on the outside, but He's brought us in because of Jesus. But I want you to note that in this specific passage, he's not even talking about the idea that we have been brought close to God. He's talking about the idea that we've been brought close to God's people. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of His household. Here's what I want. The, the, the stuff here in verse 19, I, I, I'm passionate about this. this is, I think this is hugely important for us, especially in a country where we're all focused on the individual. The most true, if you're a believer in Jesus, here's the most true thing about you. The most true thing about you is that you have been redeemed by the Son of God, that you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and that you belong to the God of the universe. That is the most true thing about you, more true than your race, more true than your gender, more true than than your background, your family of origin, more true than any of those things. The most foundational true thing about your identity is that you belong to God through Jesus Christ. That's number one. Now, here's number two. The second most foundationally true thing about you is that you belong to God's people. Your core identity is in Christ. The second most core part of your identity is that you belong to His people, even more than you belong to your biological family. Now, some of you, you're in a situation, I'm, I'm blessed with this situation. We, we just, over Thanksgiving and Christmas, spent time with my family in Georgia and then spent time with Karina's family in Oregon. And we are very blessed because both sides of our family, they're, they're believers in Jesus. We have partnership with them. We can pray for one another. We can support one another. We, we experience the idea that there's not a direct conflict between our relationship with God and our relationship with our biological family. And at the same time, I know for many of you in here, that is not the case at all. And some of you are probably in here and and you have grief, maybe fresh grief over the the holiday season, um, where you were just reminded of pain that you have and that you feel this sense of, I'm trying to follow Jesus and I feel like in order to do that, I'm I'm in conflict with my family. Um, Jesus Himself even experienced this. There's a scene where Jesus is preaching to a lot of people and his family, they think he's gone crazy. He's talking about how important he is. He's talking about himself being the Lord. And so somebody in the crowd says, your family has come to get you. They want to talk to you, which really meant they wanted to bring him outside and put him in a straitjacket. They were like, enough of this. It says in the passage that they wanted to take custody of him. And Jesus says, who is my family? It's those who hear the word of God and obey it. The brothers and sisters 
around the world and in this community who believe in Jesus Christ, they are more core to your identity than even your biological family. The most true thing about you is that you belong to Christ. The second most true thing about you is that you belong to God's people. You're no longer aliens. You're no longer foreigners. You're no longer strangers. You are brought into God's household. That means when Jesus died on the cross, He not only bought forgiveness for all of your sins, He bought your peace with other believers. And and in an age right now where where obviously in our country, there's a lot of contempt between different groups of people. This is that much more profound that we as the people of God would be experiencing the kind of peace and unity that only comes because it was bought by the cross of Jesus Christ. Your unity with other believers is something that is so central to the mission of the gospel. It transcends race, it transcends gender, it transcends socioeconomic class, and let me just say this because this is important, it transcends whether or not you voted for the president and whether or not you're going to in 2020. In this church family, there are people who voted differently in 2016 and who are once again going to vote differently in 2020. That is not a problem. I'm going to say a bunch of things on this. I'm going to say, listen very carefully to what I'm saying. Jesus Christ has not endorsed either political party in our country. (laughs) And if you think that he has, I just want to suggest that I think you are not rightly looking at the problems in both political parties in our country. Now, here's what I'm not saying. I'm not saying that you shouldn't have political opinions or that you shouldn't vote. All of us should vote. All of us do have political opinions. I'm not even right now trying to get you to change your political opinions. And I'm also not saying that on certain issues, there are right and wrong answers based on God's Word. What I'm saying is this. If you find yourself identifying more with unbelieving people who share your political party then with believers on the other side of the political aisle, you have your priorities warped. You've forgotten who you are at the core. You have more in common with somebody that you've never met living in Uganda following Jesus than with your neighbor who's not a believer but votes exactly how you vote. Our core identity is that we belong to Christ. And the second most core thing about us is that we belong to one another as believers in Jesus. And, and just uh, on a personal note, you know, Karina and I, we, we've been here for eight years now as, as a part of Life Bible Fellowship Church, um, and there's many things that we talk about about why we're so grateful that we're here. And near the top of the list is that we know that not only have we experienced the kind of family that we have here at this church, but our kids have experienced church family here. Our kids know they have a bunch of spiritual brothers and sisters, spiritual aunts and uncles. For some of you, spiritual grandmas and grandpas or great grandmas and grandpas. Um, I won't name specific people who fall into the different categories. (laughs) This is meant to be where we we find our identity in God. We find our identity in the church. And again, I hesitate partly in even saying the church because I know there's such an instinct that we have to think of the church as a place. In fact, here, I, I'm, 
This is, a, this is a little bit of a fool's errand right now. Nobody's going to take me up on this, but I'll, but I'll say it anyway. Here's a challenge for 2020. The, there are different times that I realize I'm using phrases that I want to stop using. And one of the ones I've really been working on no longer using is the phrase, go to church. I challenge you, in 2020, try to find a way to stop using the phrase, go to church or went to church in your vocabulary. And here's the reason why. You right now are not at church. You right now are with the church. The church is not a place. The church is the people of God. You're at a church service gathered with the people of God. And I know for some of you, you're like, ah, it's just semantics. All right, that's fine. Fair enough. The reason I even talk about this is because we are so ingrained with thinking of the idea that church is something we sort of participate in and maybe consume. The church is who we are. It is our core identity in Christ. And and so, I want to start at least with this. As we're starting off 2020, let me ask you a question, and I do recognize I'm asking this question to a bunch of people who actually are attending a church service right now. But the question is, how committed are you in your life to the church? I mean, if we're talking about Jesus over everything, all right, Jesus is most important. The most core part of your identity is that you belong to Him. The second most core part of your identity is that you belong to God's people. So if that's the reality, ask yourself, how important is the church to you? Are you saying, when there's not something else going on, man, we're committed? Man, we're there. We're there on Sundays as long as it's not the seasons of our kids' sports, and as long as there's not an activity that we want to do for that weekend, and as long as there's not a game that's going on during the church service, as long as none of that is happening, man, we're there. We need to, I'll say this, you know, I'm a parent, a lot of you in here are parents, Um, So let me just say this as a reality check. It is highly unlikely that our kids are going to be more committed to the church than we are. And so if right now what you're communicating to your kids is, man, we absolutely value the church, but we are going to put you in a sports league that will regularly take you away from it on Sundays. I want to say you need to rethink your priorities. Your kids are going to pick up on the deprioritization of church. But let me go even further, because you might say, all right, all right, all right I, I hear you. We need to attend. We need to attend on Sundays. And I don't mean to be mean about it, but man, attending, that, that should be like 101. The idea of gathering with God's people, man, that should just be, that, that, that should be what we're starting with. The idea, the dream of the body of Christ is not that a bunch of people get in the same room with each other once a week. That's part of how we express worship, and that's a wonderful thing. Ask yourself how committed you are to being involved in what God is doing in this church family. And if you're looking at 2020 and, you know, Andy rattled off a bunch of things, if you're looking at your health, if you're looking at your finances, if you're saying, what, where do I need to get things in order? I'm just, I just want to suggest start with looking at it and saying, how committed am I to the church? Because if I'm not, I'm moving away from one of the things that is most true about me. In Christ, we have an identity, and we start with that, but then we get to move on to to something also important as we get into verse 20, and that's that Paul says we have an identity, and we also have a foundation. He talked in verse 19 about the idea that we're God's household, and so he builds on that by saying, built on the foundation of the apostles 
and prophets, with Christ Jesus Himself being the chief cornerstone. So he's moving into this building analogy. All right, so, so for a household, if, if we're sort of a, a building right now, this household is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. And Paul's using that as shorthand to talk about the revealed Word of God. We believe that God has spoken. And we believe that it was apostles and prophets who wrote down what God spoke, not only to them, but to His people. We are built on the foundation, not just us as individuals, but we as the church also. We are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. We are not built on the foundation of the latest self-help book, even if it might be really helpful. We are not built on the foundation of the latest diet craze, even though feel free to try it this year. Our foundation is not that some of our pastors have come up with good ideas. Our foundation is that we believe God has spoken, and we start with that, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. By the way, it's pretty rotten when you end up getting to the end of building something and realizing your foundation was faulty. Um, I am not a big builder which for those of you who know me, you're like, yeah, we know. Um, if you come into our house, which some of you have been in our, in our home, um, basically every item of furniture is from Ikea. Um, if you're ever in our home and you see something and you wonder if it's from Ikea, yes, it's from Ikea. If everything from Ikea, we have like 42 Allen wrenches in the house. Um, <laughs> Ikea shoppers, you know the reality of this. Uh, A lot of the stuff in our house, even though I'm not a big builder, Ikea makes it pretty straightforward, so I've put together a lot of the pieces of furniture in our house. But let me say this, almost every piece of furniture in our house that I've put together, I've put together twice. (laughs) And the reason I've put it together, and I mean all the way together twice, (laughs) because I got to the end and realized that when I started, I had something backwards or upside down. And when that happens, you can't just right at the end, flip it over and fix it. You have to undo everything, get back to that core piece, flip it over, and then build the whole thing again. It's miserable to build something when you start with the wrong foundation. You have to do a lot of unbuilding, or you have to just be satisfied with a faulty foundation. And that's annoying when you're building a piece of Ikea furniture, But that's devastating when that's how you're building your life. When you are building your life on a faulty foundation. And and, you know, Phil talked about it when he was up here about the Bible reading plan that we're doing for, um, for 2020, which I'm so excited about, about reading through the Bible in a whole year. And I know a bunch of you have already started on this. Um, it's January 5th. And so, all right, I, I got to just give a quick plug. So, so the way that this Bible reading plan works is it's some of the Old Testament, some of the New Testament each day, um, which is mostly there so that when you get to Leviticus, at least you have Luke or something there with you because you'll want to give up at that point. But here's the deal. Some of you might, might be like, oh, I didn't know this. It's, it's five days in. Gosh, that, that's a lot of reading to do. And I'd say, yeah, it's, it's more reading than, than normal. Today, we're in, we're in uh, Genesis um, 12 through 14, and then Matthew 5. So you'd be like, oh, gosh, 14 chapters of Genesis, five chapters of Matthew, 19 chapters. I, I, I might as well not do it. If you spend one hour today, one hour today, opening your Bible and reading all this, you'll be totally caught up. 
if you're not reading this Bible reading plan, man, you need to be on a Bible reading plan. And it's not because God just sort of smiles and checks something when you read your Bible for the day. It's because every day you are pelted with faulty foundations and tempted to build your life on those. And you got to keep coming back to the source. You got to keep coming back to the reality. You need to keep coming back to the solid foundation of God's Word. Every day you are sold different foundations. And I, I can name a few. I'll, I'll just name what I think is the core one that we often get in our culture. And that's that this life is all you get. So build accordingly. This life is all you get, so you better live it up while you've got it. You better say yes to yourself. You better figure out that this is why, I, I know I've already mentioned, I hate the whole bucket list thing. Now, some of you are into the bucket list. You'll, you'll even be like, here's my summer bucket list, which by the way, doesn't even make sense. The bucket list is supposed to be when you die, not when summer dies, but that's a different rant for a different time. Um, is there a, a, I don't like the bucket list thing because it has us. It feeds into this idea. Well, I better squeeze everything in. You know, YOLO, you only live once. By the way, as Christians, do we believe that? No, No, we don't believe that. We believe you live and you die and you are raised from the dead by the Son of God. We believe it's not true that you only live once. FOMO. we, We got all these phrases now. Fear of missing out. I got to get this stuff in. I'm I'm afraid of missing out. I'm constantly checking my phone. I'm constantly checking the scores. I'm constantly finding out if I got one more like or one more heart on one of the pictures that I posted. We have this desperate fear of missing out. So, So let me just settle this for a minute. If you are absolutely following Jesus with all your heart, you are going to miss out on a lot of stuff. I guarantee it. You're going to miss out on some money because either you're so committed to Jesus and to what he's doing through his church that you're going to miss out on some opportunities to ascend in your career, or you're going to miss out on some money because you're going to be generously giving money away to people who are in need. You will miss out. You will miss out on some career opportunities because you're going to be unwilling because of your integrity, because you're following Jesus, you're going to be unwilling to do what it takes to get to the next level. Your kids are probably going to miss out on some, some opportunities for activities. They're going to miss out on some opportunities for sports. But by the way, almost nobody gets sports scholarships. I know we all think that our kid is the special exception. You will miss out on stuff. So that's a guarantee. So if you're saying, oh, I'm afraid I'm going to miss out, you will miss out. But here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, there is no one who has given up anything in this life who won't receive back a hundredfold in the life to come. This life is not your only shot. So if you're looking at it and you're saying, I got to do all this stuff because you only live once. You only live once, then you die, then you're raised to eternal life. You don't need to be afraid of missing out. But if you build your life on that foundation, it will be tragic. We are built on the foundation of the fact that God has spoken, the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, and then look at the end of the verse, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. And the whole idea, if you're familiar with this, the whole idea of a cornerstone is that that's the first stone set down and the entire building is constructed in light of that stone. You can't shoehorn a cornerstone in at the end of the building. And so some of us, what we like to do is we like to take Jesus, and instead of using him as the cornerstone, we just want to put him as a decoration. 
as an accessory on our house. She's going to hang them up like a flag. By the way, if you're going to decorate your house, you probably don't want to decorate it with a cornerstone. Jesus doesn't work as an accessory. Jesus will play one role. He will be the cornerstone. He will be the Lord. Or that there's some of it that a lot of us talk about Jesus and we say, Jesus is my Lord, which is true. If Jesus is your Lord, that's great. You know what's even more important, though, than the fact that Jesus is your Lord? It's that Jesus is the Lord. That's fine if He's your Lord, but Jesus is the Lord who will one day return and take ownership of this world. If that's true, you're building well to build on that cornerstone. We have an identity. And we have a foundation. But then in verses 21 and 22, Paul reminds us we have a mission. And he reveals to us this building he's been talking about. He reveals what this building actually is. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become what? A holy. No, you can actually say it. Rises to become? A holy temple. This is a temple that we've been talking about. Rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. He clarifies, in case we're not sure of the temple symbolism, in verse 22. And in him you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. A temple is where the presence of God is. And the temple exists so that people can see that God is real and be connected to him. Paul says, God is building something. He's making a building. And you know what that building is? It's a temple in which he dwells. And he talks about him dwelling with his, uh, through his spirit. And the New Testament talks about the reality that the Holy Spirit dwells within every believer in Jesus. If you're a believer in Jesus, you have the Holy Spirit dwelling within you, empowering you, leading you, reminding you, teaching you, and guiding you. And what we're also told in the New Testament is that the Spirit not only dwells in each one of us, but the Spirit dwells in the midst of God's people. That means the whole is even stronger than the sum of its parts. The Holy Spirit dwells in our midst. We exist as individuals and, and as a church, not simply to try to grow as close to Jesus as we can. We exist as a church in order to shine the light of Jesus to the world around us. That's why we say with our mission statement, we exist to passionately pursue life in Jesus and to lead our neighbors to do the same. And what he's saying here is not this building that we're in right now is a temple. That wouldn't be true. He's not saying the building is the temple. He's saying we are the temple. The way that we relate to one another the way that we live our lives, the way that we focus on what God has called us to do, the way, frankly, that we show love for one another is a big part of how the light of Jesus is shined to the world. So if right now as you're sitting in this room, you're thinking of somebody else in this room or maybe somebody that comes to a different service and you are at odds with them, it is worth prioritizing to figure out how you both get to the point that you remember who you are that you remember that you're brothers or that you're sisters, that you're family, and you both share that you've been redeemed by the Son of God. That dwarfs any conflicts that we have. And that also does something else. 
Because that brings us to the point that we say, all right, if we're as a church, we're not just consumers, we're on a mission. That means each one of us comes to the point of asking, what's my part in that mission? Because Jesus is not an accessory, but He's the cornerstone. And here's what we're going to do. In, in, in a minute or so, I'm going to give us a chance for some quiet reflection before the band comes up and, and leads us in a very appropriate song. Um, I know some of you you, you, you get really into the New Year's resolutions. Others of you, you kind of think of some things to change. Maybe some of you gave it no thought at all. But I want to give us a chance to think, not because the New Year is the only time to do this, but because it's always a good time to think of the fact that we want Jesus to be the cornerstone. And the fact is, if we're going to get back to that foundation, sometimes that means there's some unbuilding that needs to be done first. You might be looking at this and saying, gosh, I do want Jesus to be Lord over the finances, but we've made so many commitments, I don't know where to squeeze in generosity. You might need to do some unbuilding of financial commitments. You might need to move into a smaller home. You might need to sell a car. You might need to go back and do some unbuilding if you're really going to put Jesus as the cornerstone of your finances. If Jesus is going to be Lord of your time, you might need to do some unbuilding. You might need to say, all right, well, we're so overcommitted right now. You are in control of many of your commitments. And there may be some perfectly fine things that you decide to move down to the bottom of the list because there's something more important at stake. Man, in a few weeks, we're going to have our Go Team Sunday. We're going to talk about what God is doing through us as a church family overseas in all kinds of different places. We're going to be talking about God's calling for us here locally as we go out and shine His light. If you're looking at this right now and you're saying, I should be on mission for Jesus, so I'm going to go out and figure it out. I want to just suggest to you, maybe before going out and figuring it out, you come to your church family and see what God's already doing, and you'll find where you fit into all of this. But I'm going to ask you right now, just go ahead and bow your heads, and we're just going to do something that we don't do a lot in our culture, and that's that we're going to take a quiet minute. We're going to take a minute before the band leads us and quietly reflect on what God's calling us to do. Because for some of you, through this passage, it might be obvious you might know there's, there's sin that needs to be taken on. There's some kind of habit that needs to be cultivated. There's a step towards ministry that needs to be taken. But for some of you, this quiet moment might be the time that God speaks to you specifically about what He's calling you to do. So let's take that moment before we commit ourselves anew to what God is calling us to.